Chapter 5 It was 10 o'clock in the morning. The day was warm for April, and the golden sunlight streamed brilliantly into Scarlet's room through the blue curtains of the wide windows. The cream-colored walls glowed with light, and the depths of the mahogany furniture gleamed deep red-like wine, while the floor glistened as if it were glass, except where the rag rods covered it and they were spots of gay color. Already summer was in the air, the first hint of Georgia summer, when the high tide of spring gives way reluctantly before a fiercer heat. A balmy, soft warmth poured into the room, heavy with velvety smells, redolent of many blossoms, of newly fledged trees, and of the moist, freshly turned red earth. Through the window, Scarlet could see the bright riot of the twin lanes of daffodils bordering the graveled driveway and the golden masses of yellow jessamine spreading flowery sprangles modestly to the earth into crinolines. The mockingbirds and the jays edged in their old feud for possession of the mag- magnolia tree beneath the window were bickering. The jays strident, ecrimious, the mockers sweet-voiced and plaintive. Such a glowing morning usually called Scarlet to the window, to lean arms on the broad sill and drink in the scents and sounds of Tara. But today she had no eye for sun or azure, azure, <laughs> azure sky beyond a hasty thought. Thank God it isn't raining. On the bed lay the apple green watered silk bowl dress with its festoons of ecru lace neatly packed in a large cardboard box. It was ready to be carried to Twelve Oaks to be donned before the dancing began. But Scarlet shrugged at the sight of it. If her plans were successful, she would not wear that dress tonight. Long before the ball began, she and Ashley would be on their way to Jonesboro to be married. The troublesome question was, what dress should she wear to the barbecue? What dress would best set off her charms and make her more irresistible to Ashley? Since 8 o'clock, she had been trying on and rejecting dresses, and now she started dejected and irritable in lace pantalettes, linen corset cover, and three billowing lace and linen petticoats. Discarded garments lay about her on the floor, the bed, the chairs, and the bright heaps of color and string ribbons. The rose organdy with long pink sash was becoming, but she had worn it last summer when Melanie visited. Twelve oaks, and she'd be sure to remember it. It might be catty enough to mention it. The black bombazine with its puff sleeves and princess lace color set off her white skin superbly, but it did make her look a little, a trifle elderly. Scarlet peered anxiously in the mirror at her 16-year-old face as if expecting to see wrinkles and sagging chin muscles. It would never do to appear sedate and elderly before Melanie's sweet youthfulness. The lavender-barred muslin was beautiful with those wide, insets of lace and net about the hem that had never suited her type. It would suit Corrine's delicate profile and wishy-washy expression perfectly, but Scarlet felt that it made her look like a schoolgirl. It would never do to appear schoolgirlish beside Melanie's poised self. The green plaid taffets, frothing with flounces and each flounce edged green velvet ribbon, was most becoming. In fact, her favorite dress, for it darkened her eyes to emerald. But there was mistaken, mistaken, oh, but there was mis- unmistakably 
a grease spot on the front of the basque. Of course, her brooch could be pinned over the spot, but perhaps Melanie had sharp eyes. There remained very colored cotton dresses, which Scarlet felt were not festive enough for the occasion. Ball dresses in the green sprig muslin she had worn yesterday was afternoon dress. It was not suitable for a barbecue, for it had only tiny puff sleeves and the neck was low enough for a dancing dress. But there was nothing else to do but wear it. After all, she was not ashamed of her neck and arms and bosom and bosom, <laughs> even as if even if it was not correct to show them in the morning. As she stood before the mirror and twisted herself about to get a side view, she thought there was absolutely nothing about her figure to cause her shame. Her neck was short but rounded and her arms plump and enticing. Her breasts, pushed high by the her stays, were very nice breasts. She had never had to sew tiny rows of silk ruffles in the lining of her basques, as most 16-year-old girls did, to give their figures the desired curves and fullness. She was glad she had inherited Ellen's slender white hands and tiny feet, and she wished she had Ellen's height too, but her own height pleased her very well. What a pity legs could not be shown, she thought, pulling up her petticoats and regretfully viewing them, plump and neat under pantalets. She had such nice legs. Even the girls of the Fafayette Academy had admitted as much. And as for her waist, there was no one in Fayetteville, Jonesboro, or in three counties, for that matter, who had a so small a waist. The thought of her waist brought her back to practical matters. The green muslin measured 17 inches about the waist, and Mammy had laced her for the 18-inch bombazine. Mammy would have to lace her tighter. She pushed open the door, listened, and heard Mammy's heavy tread in the downstairs hall. She shouted for her impatiently, knowing she could raise her voice with impunity as Ellen was in the smokehouse, measuring out the day's f- food to cookie. Some folks think, oh, wow, I don't remember how I said Mammy. Some folks think, ha, a kin fla, grumbled Mammy, shuffling up the stairs. She entered puffing with the expression of one who expects battle and welcomes it. In her large black hands was a tray upon which food smoked, two large yams <laughs> covered with butter, a pile of buckwheat cakes dripping syrup, and a large slice of ham swimming in gravy. Catching sight of Mammy's burden, Scarlet's expression changed from one of minor irritation to obstinate belligerency. Quincy. In the excitement of trying on dresses, she had forgotten Mammy's ironclad rule that before going to any party, the O'Hara girls must be crammed so full of food at home they would be unable to eat any refreshments at the party. It's no use. I won't eat it. You can just take it back to the kitchen. Mammy set the tray on the table and squared herself, hands on hips. Yes, some you is. I ain't figuring on having happened what happened what happened at that. Last barbecue, when I was too sick from dim chillings, I had to fetch you no tray before you, you went. You was going to eat every bite of this. I am not. Now, come here and lace me tighter before we are late already. I heard the carriage come round to the front of the house. Mammy's tone became wheedling. Now, Miss Scarlet, you be good and come eat just a little. Miss Corrine and Miss Suellen done ate all then. They should, said Scarlet contentiously. They haven't any spirit than a rabbit, but I won't. I'm through with trays. 
I'm not forgetting the time I ate a whole tray and went to the Calverts and they had ice cream out of ice they'd brought all the way from Savannah. And I couldn't eat but a spoonful. I'm going to have a good time today and eat as many as I please. At this defiant heresy, heresy, (laughs) Mammy's brow lowered with indignation. What a young miss could do and what she could not do were different as black and white in Mammy's mind. There was no middle ground of deportment between. Suellen and Corrine were clay in her powerful hands and hearkened respectfully to her warning. But it had always been a struggle to teach Scarlet that most of her natural impulses were unladylike. Mammy's victories over Scarlet were hard-won and represented guile unknown to the white mind. If you don't care about how folks talk about disfriendly, I does, she rumbled. I ain't gonna stand by and have everybody at the party saying how you ain't forged up great right. I has told you and told you you don't. <laughs> that you can always tell a ladybird that she eat like a bird. And I ain't aiming to have you go to Mr. Wilkes and eat like a thin hand and gobbling out a hog. Mother's lady and she eats, countered Scarlet. When you's married, you can eat too, retorted Mammy. When Miss Ellen, your age, she never eat all nothing when she went on, and neither your Aunt Pauline nor your Aunt Elulali. And they all done married. Young misses what eats heavy most generally don't never catch husbands. I don't believe it. At that barbecue, when you were sick and I didn't eat beforehand, Ashley Wilkes told me he liked to see a woman with a healthy appetite. Mammy shook her head anonymously. What gentlemen says and what gen- what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley asking for you marry you. Scarlet scowled, started to speak sharply, and then caught herself. Mammy had her there, and there was no argument. Seeing the ops. Uh, oh, obdurate look in Scarlet's face, Mammy picked up the tray and with a bland guile of her raise, changed her tactics. As she started for the door, she sighed. Well, I might. I was telling Cookie while she was affixing this tray, you can sure tell a lady about what she don't eat and say to Cookie, I ain't said no what lady who eat less than Miss Melanie Hamilton. Didn't last time she was visiting Miss Astley. I mean, visiting Miss Elendia. Scarlet shot a look of sharp suspicion at her, but Mammy's broad face carried only a look of innocence and of regret that Scarlet was not the Lady Melanie Hamilton was. Put down that tray and come lace me tighter, said Scarlet irritably, and I'll try to eat a little afterwards. If I ate now, I couldn't lace tight enough. Cloaking her triumph, Mammy set down the tray. What's my lamb going away? That answered Scarlet, pointing at the fluffy mass of green-flowered muslin. Instantly, Mammy was in arms. No, you ain't. It ain't fitting for morning. You can show your bosom before three o'clock, and you can't show your bosom before three o'clock, and I don't, and that dress ain't got no neck and no sleeves, and you'll get freckled sure as you're born, and I ain't flagging on you getting freckled after all the buttermilk and 
uh, been putting on y'all the winter bleaching them freckles. You got a savanna setting on the bleach. Uh, sure going miss speak for ya, my about ya. If you say one word to her before I'm dressed, I won't eat a bite," said Scarlet coolly. "Mother won't have time to send me back to change once I'm dressed." <clears throat> oh, I'm gonna speak to your mom about you. Okay, Mammy sighed resignedly, <laughs> beholding herself outgassed before the two evils. It was better to have Scarlet wear an afternoon dress in a morning barbecue than to have her gobble like a hog. Hole out of something, a suck in your breath, she commanded. Scarlet obeyed, bracing herself and catching firm hold of one of the blood posts. Mammy pulled and jerked vigorously, and at the tiny circumference of whalebone gurgled waist grew smaller, a proud, fond look came into her eyes. Ain't nobody got to waste like my lamb, she said approvingly. Every time I pulls Miss Llewellyn little down twenty inches, she up on faint. Phew, gasped Scarlet, speaking with difficulty. I never fainted in my life. Well, twouldn't do no harm as if you was to faint now again, advised Mammy. You is so brash sometimes, Miss Scarlet, and been aiming to tell you is just don't look good the way you done faint about, about snakes and mosses and such. I don't mean round home, but when you is out in the company, I... I has told you. Oh, hurry. Don't talk so much. I'll catch a husband. See if I don't. Even if I don't scream and faint. Goodness, but my stays are tight. Put on the dress. Mimi carefully dropped the 12 yards of green smudged muslin over the mountainous petticoats and hooked up the back of the tight, low-cut busk. You keep your shawl on your shoulders when you're in the sun, and don't you go taking off your hat when you're warm, she commanded. Elsewise, you be coming home looking brown like old Miss Lottery. Now, you come eat, honey, but don't eat too fast. No use having it come right back up again. Scarlet obediently sat down before the tray, wondering if she would be able to get any food into her stomach and still have room to breathe. Mammy plucked a large towel from the waist stand and carefully tied it around Scarlet's neck, spreading the white folds over her lap. Scarlet began on the ham because she liked ham and forced it down. I wish to heaven I was married, she said resentfully as she tucked the yams in the clothing. I'm tired of everything everlastingly being unnatural and never doing anything I want to do. I'm tired of acting like I don't eat more than a bird and walk in when I want to run and saying I feel faint after I waltz. And then I could dance for two days and never get tired. I'm tired of saying how wonderful you are. To fool men who haven't got one half the sense I've got. And I'm tired of pretending I don't know anything so men can tell me things and feel important while I'm there doing it. I can't eat another bat. Try hot cake, said Mammy inexorably. Why is it a girl has to do be so silly to catch a husband? I specs it's because gentlemen don't know what they wants. They just knows what they thinks they wants. Given them what they thinks they wants, saves a pile of misery and been on an old maid. And they thinks they wants mousy little gals with bird's taste and no sense at all. It don't make a young gentleman feel like man, 
lady if he's suspicious she got more sense than he is. Don't you suppose men get surprised after they're married to find their wives do have sense? Well, it's too late then. Days are they made. Sides, gentlemen specs their wives to have sense. Someday I'm going to do and say everything I want to do and say. I'm going to do, um, wait. And if people don't like it, I don't care. No, you ain't, said Mammy grimly. Not while I got birth. You eat dumb cakes. Stout them in the gravy, honey. I don't think Yankee girls have to act like such fools. When we were at Saratoga last year, I noticed plenty of them acting like they had right good sense in front of men, too. Mammy snorted. Yankee girls? Yes'm. Augusta speaks to minds, all right, but I ain't. Notice many of them getting proposed to at Saratoga. But Yankees must be get married, argued Larry. They don't just grow. They must get married and have children. There's too many of them. Men marries them for the money, said Mammy firmly. Scarlet sopped the wheat cake in the gravy and put it in her mouth. Perhaps there was something to it in it, for Ellen said the same things in different and more delicate words. In fact, the mothers of all her girlfriends impressed on their daughters the necessity of being helpless, clinging, doe-eyed creatures. Really, it took a lot of sense to cultivate and hold such a pose. Perhaps she had been too brash. Occasionally, she had argued with Ashley and, frankly, aired her opinions. Perhaps this is this and her healthy enjoyment of walking and riding had turned him from her to the frail Melanie. Perhaps if she changed her tactics, but she felt that if Ashley succumbed to premeditated feminine tricks, she could never respect him as she now did. Any man who was fool enough to fall for simper, a faint, and, oh, how wonderful you are, wasn't worth having, but they all seemed to like it. If she had used the wrong taxes with Ashley in the past, well, that was the past and done with. Today, she would use different ones, the right ones. She wanted him, and she had only a few hours in which to get him. If fainting or pretending to faint would do the trick, then she would faint. If simpering co- co- cre- whoa. coquetry or empty-headedness would attract him, she would gladly play the flirt and be more empty-handed than even Catherine Cabard. And if bolder measures were necessary, she would take them. Today was the day. There was no one to tell Scarlet that her own personality, frighteningly vital though it was, was more attractive than any masquerade she might adopt. Had she been told, she would have been pleased but unbelieving. And the civilization of which she was a part would have been unbelieving too. For at no time, before or since, had so low a premium been placed on feminine naturalness. As the carriage bore her down the red roads toward the Wilkes plantation, Scarlet had a feeling of guilty pleasure that neither her mother nor Mammy was with the party. There would be no one at the barbecue who, by delicately lifted brows or outthrust underlip, could interfere with her plan of action. Of course, Suellen would be certain to tell tales tomorrow, but if all went as Scarlet hoped, the excitement of the family over her engagement to Ashley or her elopement would more than overbalance their displeasure. Yes, she was very glad Ellen had been forced to stay at home. Gerald, primed with brandy and had given Jonas Wilkinson 
his dismissal that morning, and Ellen had remained at Tara to go over the counts of the plantation before he took his departure. Scarlet had kissed her mother goodbye, and in the little office where she sat before her, the tall secretary with his paper stuffed pigeonholes. Jonas Wilkinson, hat in hand, stood beside her, his sallow, tight-skinned face hardly concealing the fury of hate that possessed him at being so unceremoniously turned out to the best overseer's job in the county, and all because of a bit of minor philandering. He had told Gerald over and over that Emmy Slattery's baby might have been fathered by any one of the dozen men as easily as himself, an idea in which Gerald uh, concurred, but that had not altered his his case so far as Ellen was concerned. Jonas hated all Southerners. He hated their cool courtesy to him and their contempt for his social status so inadequately covered by their courtesy. He hated Ellen O'Hara above anyone else, for she was the epitome of all that he hated in Southerners. Mammy, as head woman of the plantation, had remained to help Ellen, and if it was Darcy who rode on the driver's seat beside Toby, the girl's dancing dresses and the long box across her lap. Gerald rode beside the carriage on his big hunter, warm with brandy and pleased with himself for having gotten through with the unpleasant business of Wilkinson so speedily. He had shoved the responsibility onto Ellen, and her disappointment at missing the barbecue and the gathering of her friends did not enter his mind. For it was a fine spring day, and his fields were beautiful, and the birds were singing, and he felt too young and frolicsome to think of anyone else. Occasionally, he bursted out with a peg in a low-backed car and other Irish ditties or the more lugubrious lament for Robert Emmett. She is far from the land where her young hero sleeps. He was happy, pleasantly excited over the prospect of spending the day shouting about the Yankees in the war and proud of his three petty pretty daughters and their bright spreading hoop skirts beneath foolish little lace parcels. Gave no thought to his conversation of the day before with Scarlet, for it had completely slipped his mind. He only thought that he was pretty, she was pretty and great credit to him, and that today her eyes were as green as the hills of Ireland. The last thought made him think better of himself, for it had a certain poetic ring to it, and so he favored the girls with loud and slightly off-key rendition of the wearing, the wearing of the green. Scarlet, looking at him with affectionate contempt that mothers feel for small, swaggering sons, knew that he would be very drunk by sundown. Coming home in the dark, he would try, as usual, to jump every fence between Twelve Oaks and Tara, and, she hoped, by mercy of providence, and the good sense of the horse, would escape breaking his neck. He would disdain the bridge and swim his horse through the river and come home roaring, to be put to bed on the sofa of the office by Pork, who always waited up with a lamp in the front hall on such occasions. He would ruin his new gray broadcloth broadcloth suit, which would cause him to swear horribly in the morning and tell Ellen at great length how his horse fell off the bridge in the darkness. A palpable lie which would fool no one but which would be accepted by all and make him very clever. Feel very clever. Pa is a sweet, selfish, irresponsible darling, Scarlet thought, with a surge of affection for him. She felt so excited and happy this morning that she included the whole world, as well as Gerald, in her affection. 
She was pretty and she knew it. She would have Ashley for her own before the day was over. The sun was warm and tender and the glory of the Georgia spring was spread before her eyes. Along the roadside, the blackberry brambles were concealing with softest green the savage red gulges cut by the winter's rains and the bare granite boulders pushing up through the red earth were being draped with draped with sprangles of Cherokee roses encompassed about by wild violets of palest purple hue. Upon the wooded hills above the river, the dogwood blossoms lay glistening in white, as if snow still lingered among the greenery. The flowering crab trees were bursting their buds and rioting from delicate white to deepest pink and beneath the trees where the sunshine dappled like pink straw, pine straw, the wild honeysuckle made a very colored carpet of scarlet and orange and rose. There was a faint wild fragrance of sweet shrub on the breeze and the world smelled good enough to eat. I remember how beautiful this day is till I die, thought Scarlet. Perhaps it will be my wedding day. And she thought, with a tingling of her heart, how she and Ashley might ride swiftly through this beauty of blossom and greenery this very afternoon, or tonight by a moonlight toward Jonasboro and a preacher. Of course, she would have to be remarried by a priest from Atlanta, but that would be something for Ellen and Gerald to worry about. She crawled a little as she thought how white, with mortification, Ellen would be hearing that her daughter had eloped with another girl's fiancé. But she knew Ellen would forgive her when she saw her happiness. And Gerald would scold and bawl for her, but for all his remarks of yesterday about now wanting her to marry Ashley, he would be pleased beyond words at an alliance between his family and the Wilkes. But that would be something to worry about after I'm married, she thought tossing the way from her. It was impossible to feel anything but palpitating joy this warm sun. In the spring, with the chimneys of twelve oaks just beginning to show on the hill across the river, I'll live there all my life, and I'll see fifty sprigs like this, maybe more, and I'll tell my children and my grandchildren how beautiful this spring was, lovelier than any they'll ever see. She was so happy at this thought, that she joined in the last chorus of the wearing of the green and one Gerald shouted approval. I don't know why you're so happy this morning, said Swellen crossly, for the thought still ranked, rankled in her mind that she would look far better than Scarlet's, in Scarlet's green silk dancing frock than its rightful owner would. And why was Scarlet always so selfish about lending her clothes and bonnets? And why did Mother always back her up, declaring green was not Swellen's color? You know, as well as I do, that Ashley's engagement is going to be announced tonight. Pa said so this morning, and I know you've been sweet on him for months. That's all you know, said Scarlet, putting out her tongue and refusing to lose her good humor. How surprised Miss Sue would be by this time tomorrow morning. Susie, you know that's not so, protested Corrine, shocked. It's Brent that Scarlet cares about. Scarlet turned smiling green eyes upon her younger sister. Wondering how anyone could be so sweet. The whole family knew that Corrine's 13-year-old heart was set upon Brent Tarleton, who never gave her a thought except for Scarlet's baby sister. When Ellen was not present, the O'Haras teased her to fear tears about him. Darling, I don't care a thing about Brent. 
declared Scarlet, happy enough to be generous. And he doesn't care a thing about me. Why, he's waiting for you to grow up. Corrine's round little face became pink as pleasure struggled with incredulity. Oh, Scarlet, really? Scarlet, you know Mother, said Corrine, was too young to think about Beau yet. And there you go, putting ideas in her head. Well, go and tattle and see if I care, replied Scarlet. You want to hold Sissy back because you know she's going to be prettier than you in a year or so. You'd, you'll be keeping silver tongs in your heads this day or I'll be taking your crop to you, warned Gerald. Now, whist, is it, is it Wills I'm here? That'll be Tarleton's of the Frontines. As they neared the interesting, intersecting road, they came down the thickly wooded hill from Mimosa and Fairhill. The sound of hooves and carriage wheels became plainer and clamorous feminine voices raised and pleasant dispute sounded like from behind a screen of trees. Gerald, running ahead, pulled up his horse and signed to Toby to stop the carriage where the two roads met. "'Tis the Talton ladies,' he announced to his daughters. Um, his florid face a beam for accepting Ellen. There was no lady in the county he liked more than the red-haired Mrs. Tarleton. And tis himself, herself at the reins. And there's a woman with fine hands for a horse, feather light and strong as hair hide, and pretty enough to kiss all for all that. More's the pity in one of ye has such hands, he added, casting fond but reproving glances at his girls. With Corrine afraid of the poor East and Sue with hands like satyrs when it comes to reins and you puss. Well, at any rate, I've never been thrown, Scarlet, cried Scarlet indignantly. indignantly. And Mrs. Tarleton takes a toss at every hunt and breaks a collarbone with like a man, said Gerald. No fainting, no fussing, now no more of it, for here she comes. He stood up in his stirrups and took off his hat with a sweep as a Tarleton carriage overflowing with girls in view with Mrs. Tarleton on the box, as Gerald had said, with her four daughters, their mammy, and their ball dresses and long cardboard boxes crowding the carriage. There was no room for the coachman. And besides, Beatrice Tarleton never willingly permitted anyone, black or white, to hold reins when her arms were out of slings. Frail, fine-boned, so white of skin that her flaming hair seemed to have drawn all the color from her face into its vital burnished mass, she was nevertheless possessed of exuberant health and untiring energy. She had borne eight children, as red as hair, and as full of life as she, and had raised them most successfully. So the county said, because she gave them all the loving neglect and the stern discipline she gave the colts she bred. Curve them, but don't break their spares, said Mrs. Tarleton's motto. What's Mrs. Tarleton's motto? She loved horses and talked horses constantly. She understood them and handled them better than any man in the county. Colts overflowed the paddocks onto the front lawn, even as her eight children overflowed the rambling house on the hill. And colts and sons and daughters and hunting dogs tagged after her as she went about the plantation. She credited her horses, especially her red mare, Nellie, with human intelligence. And if the cares of the house kept her busy beyond the time when she expected and 
to take her daily ride, she put the sugar bowl in the hands of small, some small piccaninny and said, Give Nellie a handful and tell her I'll be out directly. Except on rare occasions, she always wore her riding habit. For whatever, whether she rode or not, she always expected to ride. And in that expectation, put on her habit upon rising. Each morning, rain or shine, Nellie was saddled and walked up and down in front of the house, waiting for the time when Mrs. Tarleton could spare an hour away from the, from her duties. But Firhill was a difficult plantation to manage, and spare time hard to get, and more often than not, Nellie walked up and down riderless hour after hour, while Beatrice Tarleton went through the day with the skirt of her habit absently looped over her arm and six inches of shining boot showing below it. Today, dressed in dull black silk over unfashionable, fashionably narrow hoops, she still looked as though in her habit, for the dress was as severely tailored as her riding costume, and the small black hat with its long black plume perched over one arm, twinkling brown eyes, was a replica of the battered old hat she used for hunting. She waved her whip when she saw Gerald and drew her dancing pair of her red horse to her halt. The four girls in the back of the carriage leaned out and gave such voiceferous cries of greeting that the team pranced in alarm. To a casual observer, it would seem that years had passed since the Charlton's had seen the O'Hara's instead of only two days, but they were a sociable family and liked their neighbors, especially the O'Hara girls. That is, they liked Swillen and Kareen. No girl in the county, with the possibility, possible exception of the empty-headed Kathleen Carver, really liked Scarlet. In summers, the county averaged a barbecue, a ball, and ball nearly every week. But the red-haired Tarletons, with their enormous capacity for enjoying themselves, each barbecue and each ball was as exciting as if it were the first they had ever attended. They were a pretty buxom quartet, so crammed into the carriage that their hoops and flounces overlapped and their parasols nudged and bumped together above their wide leghorn white sun hats, crowned with roses and dangling with black velvet chin ribbons. All shades of red hair were represented beneath these hats. Hattie's plain red hair, Camilla's strawberry blonde, Randa's coppery auburn, and small Betty's carrot top. That's a fine bevy, ma'am," said Gerald gallantly, reining his horse alongside the carriage. "But it's far they, they'll go to beat their mother." Miss Tarleton rolled her red brown eyes and sucked in her lower lip, in burlesque appreciation. And the girls cried, "Ma, stop making eyes, or we'll tell Pa." I vow, Mister O'Hara, she never give us a chance when there's a handsome man like you around. Scarlet laughed with the rest of these sassy sallies did, but as always, the freedom with which the Tarleton treated their mother came as a shock. They acted as if she were one of themselves and not a day over sixteen. To Scarlet, the very idea of saying such things to her own mother was almost sacrilegious. Sacrilegious, and yet, and yet, there was something very pleasant about the Tarleton girls' relations with their mother. And they adored her for all they criticized and scolded and teased her. Not Scarlet loyally hastened to tell herself that she would prefer a mother like Mrs. Tarleton to Ellen. But still, it would be fun to romp with a mother. 
She knew that even that thought was disrespectful to Ellen and felt ashamed of it. She knew no such troublesome thoughts ever disturbed the brains under the four flaming thatches of the carriage. And as always, when she felt herself different from her neighbors, an irritated confusion fell upon her. Quick through her, though her brain was, it was not made for analysis. But she half-consciously realized that for all the Tarleton girls were as early as colts and wild as March hares, there was an unworried single-mindedness about them that was part of their inheritance. On both their mother's and their father's side, there were Georgians, North Georgians, only a generation away from pioneers. They were sure of themselves and of their environment. They knew instinctively that they were about what, what they were about, as did the Wilkeses, though in wildly different divergent ways and in them there was no such conflict as frequently rage and scarlet blossom where the blood of a soft voice overbred coast aristocrat mingled with the shrewd earthly blood of an irish peasant scarlet wanted to respect and adore her mother like an idol and to rumble her hair and tease her too and she knew she should be altogether one way or the other it was the same conflicting emotion that made her desire to fear a delicate a hybrid lady with bows, boys, and to be as well a Holden who was not above a few kisses. Where is Ellen this morning? asked Mrs. Tarleton. Uh, she is after discharging our overseer and stayed home to go over the accounts with him. Where's himself and the ladies? Oh, they rode over to Twelve Oaks some hours ago to sample the punch and see if it was strong enough, I dare say. As if they wouldn't have from now to tomorrow morning to do it. I'm going to ask John Wilkes to keep them overnight, even if he has to bed them down in the stable. Five men in their cups are just too much for me. Up to three, I do well, very well, but... Gerald hastily interrupted to change the subject. He could feel his own daughter's snickering behind him back as they remembered in what condition he had come home after the Wilkes' last barbecue the autumn before. And why aren't you writing today, Mrs. Tarleton? Sure you don't look yourself at all without knitting. It's a stentor, ya. A stentor, me ignorant broth of a boy, cried Mrs. Tarleton, Sprinkers for bro. A paying hers, bro. You mean a centa? Centaur was a man with the voice of a, with like a brash gong. Centaur, centa, tis no matter. Centaur or centaur? Oh, that's the difference. Okay. Centaur or centaur, tis no matter, answered Gerald, ruffled by his error. And tis a voice like, like brass you have, ma'am, when you urge on the hound, so it is. That's one on you, ma, said Hetty. I told you, yellow like a comb much whenever you saw a fox. But not as loud as you yell when Mammy washes your ears, returned Mr. Tarleton. And you're 16. Well, as to why I'm not writing today, Nellie followed early this morning. Did you know? cried Gerald with real interest. His Irish man's passion for horses shining in his eyes. Scarlet again felt the sense of shock in comparing her mother with Mrs. Tarleton. To Ellen, Mars never fouled nor cows calved. In fact, hens almost didn't lay eggs. Ellen ignored these matters completely, but Mrs. Tarleton had no much, 
reticence. A little filly, was it? No, a fine little stallion with legs two yards long. You must ride over and see him, Mr. O'Hara. He's a real Tarleton horse. He's as red as Hetty's curls. And looks a look like Hetty, too, said Camilla, and then disappeared shrieking amid a welter of skirts and pantalets and bobbing hats as Hetty, who did have a long face, began punching her. My fillets are feeling their oats this morning, said Mrs. Tarleton. They've been kicking up their heels over ever since we heard the news this morning about Ashley and that little cousin of his from Atlanta. She's a sweet little thing. Oh, wait, from Atlanta. What's her name? Melanie? Bless the child. She's a sweet little thing, but I can never remember either her name or her face. Our cook and the broad wife of the Wilkes Butler, and he was over last night with the news that the engagement would be announced tonight, and Cookie told us this morning... The girls are all excited about it, though I can't see why. Everybody's known for years that Ashley would marry her, that is, if he didn't marry one of the Burr cousins from Malkin. Just like Honey Wilkes is going to marry Melanie's brother, Charles. Now tell me, Mr. O'Hara, is it illegal for the Wilkes to marry outside their family? Because if... Scarlet did not hear the rest of the laughing words. For one short instant, it was as though the sun... Uh, had ducked behind a cool cloud, leaving the world in shadow, taking the color out of things. The freshly green foliage looked sickly and dog white, dogwood pallid, and the flowering crab, so beautifully pink a moment ago, faded and dreary. Scarlet dug her fingers into the upholstery of the carriage. For a moment, her parasol wavered. It was one thing to know that Ashley was engaged, but it was another to hear people talk about it so casually. Then her courage flowed strongly back, and the sun came out again, and the landscape glowed anew. She knew Ashley loved her, that was certain, and she smiled as she thought how surprised Mrs. Tarleton would be when no engagement was announced that night. Now, how surprised if there was no elopement, if if there were an elopement, oh, okay, how surprised if there were an elopement. And she told neighbors that a sly boot Scarlet was to sit there and listen to her talk about Melanie when all the time she and Ashley. She doubled at her own thoughts and Hetty, who had been watching sharply the effect of her mother's words, sank back with a small puzzled frown. I don't care what you say, Mr. O'Hara, Miss Tarleton was saying empathetically. It's all wrong. The marrying of the cousins, it's bad enough for Ashley to be marrying the Hamilton child. But from honey to marrying that pale-looking Charles Hamilton? Honey will never catch anybody else if she don't marry ha- Charlie, said Rhonda, cruel and secure in her own populace. She's never had another beau except him, and he's never acted very sweet on her. But for all that they're, they're engaged, Scarlet, you remember how he ran after you last Christmas? Don't be a cot, miss, said her mother. Cousins shouldn't marry, even second cousins. It weakens a, a strain. It isn't like horses. You can breed a mare to a brother or a sire to a daughter and get good results if you know your blood strains. But in people, it just doesn't work. You get good lines, perhaps, but no stamina. You. Uh. Now, ma'am, I'm taking issue with you on that. Can you name me better people than the Wilkeses? 
and they've been intermarrying since Brian Bowen was a boy. And high time they stopped it, for it's beginning to show, oh no, Ashley so much, not Ashley so much, for he's a good-looking devil, though even he... But look at those two washed-out-looking Wilkes girls, poor things. Nice girls, of course, but washed out. And look at little Miss Melanie, thin as a rail and delicate enough for the wind to blow away. No spare at all. Not a notion of her own. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's all she has to say. You see what I mean? That family needs new blood. Fine, vigorous blood, like my redheads or your scarlet. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Wilkes are fine folks in their way, and you know I'm fond of them all, but you be frank. They are overbred and interbred too, aren't they? They'll do fine on the dry track and fast track, but mark my words, I don't believe the Wilkeses can run on a mud track. I believe the stamina has been bred out of them, and when the emergency rises, I don't believe they can run around against odds. Dry weather stock, give me a big horse, you... Who can run in any weather, and their intimacy has always been different from other folks around here. Always fiddling with a piano or sticking their heads in a book. I do believe Ashley would rather read than a hunt. Yes, I honestly believe that Mr. Hara. And just look at the bones on them. Too slender. They never doms and sires with strength. I don't. I, I hum, said Gerald. Suddenly and guiltily aware that the conversation, a most interesting and entirely proper one to him, would seem quite otherwise to Ellen. In fact, he knew she would never recover should she learn that her daughters had been exposed to frank, so frank a conversation. But Mrs. Tarleton was, as usual, deaf to all other ideas when pursuing her favorite topic, breeding, whether it be horses or humans. I know what I'm talking about because I had some cousins who married each other. And I give you my word, their children are all turned out pop-eyed as frogs, poor things. And when my family wanted to marry a sec- me to marry a second cousin, I buckled like a cult. I said, no, ma, not for my, not for me. My children will all have spaffins and haves. Well, my f- ma fainted then when I said that about spaffins. But I stood firm and grandma backed me up. She knew a lot about horse breeding, too, you see, and said I was right. And she helped me run away with Mr. Charlton and look at my children, big and healthy and not a sickly one or a runt among them, though Boyd is only five feet ten. Now the Wilkes. Not meaning to change the subject, ma'am. What the hell? Well, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't. Do accents. Okay. Broken Charl- Gerald hurriedly. For he had noticed Corrine's bewildered look and the avid curiosity in Sue Ellen's face, feared least they might ask Ellen embarrassing questions, which would reveal how inadequate a chaperone he was. Puss, he was glad to notice, appeared to be thinking of other matters as a lady should. Hetty Charlton rescued him from his predicament. Good heavens, Ma, do the let let's get on, she cried impatiently. The sun is broiling me, and I can just hear freckles popping out on my neck. Just a minute, ma'am. Before you go, said Gerald, but what have you decided to do about selling us the horses for the troop? War may break any day now, and the boys want the matter settled. It's a Clayton County troop, and it's Clayton County horses we want for them. But you, obstinate creature that you are, are still refusing to sell us for your fine beasts. Maybe there won't be any war, Mrs. Tarleton 
temporized. Her mind diverted completely from the Wilkes' old measures habits. Well, ma'am, you can't. Ma, Hetty interrupted again. Can't you and Mr. O'Hara talk about the horses at Twelve Oaks as well as here? That's just it, Smith, Hetty, and I won't be keeping you but one minute by the clock. We'll be getting to Twelve Oaks in a little bit, and every man there, old and young, wanted to know about the horses. Ah, uh, but it's breaking my heart to see such a fine, pretty lady as your mother so stingy with her beasts. Now, where's your patriotism, Mrs. Tarleton? Does the Confederacy mean nothing to you at all? Ma, cried small Betsy. Randa's sitting on my dress, and I'm get, getting all wrinkled. Well, push Randa off you, Betsy, and hush. Now, listen to me, Gerald O'Hara, she retorted, her eyes beginning to snap. Don't you go throwing the Confederacy in my face. I reckon the Confederacy means as much to me as it does to you. Me with four boys in the troop and you with none. But my boys can take care of themselves and my horses can't. I will gladly give the horses free of charge if I knew they were going to be ridden by boys I know gentlemen used um I know gentlemen used to to thoroughbreds. No, I wouldn't hesitate a minute, but let my beauties be at the mercy of back Woodsmen and crackers who are used to riding mules? No, sir. I'd have nightmares thinking they were being ridden with saddle gals and not groomed properly. Do you think I'd let ignorant fools ride my tender mouth darlings and saw their mouths to pieces and beat them till their spirits were broken? Why, I've got goose flesh this minute just thinking about it. No, Mr. O'Hara, you're mighty nice to want my horses. But you'd better go to Atlanta and buy some old plugs for your clog hoppers. They'll never know the difference. Ma, can't we please go on? Asked Camilla, joining the patient chorus. You know mighty well you're going to be end up giving them your darlings anyhow. When Pa said, and the boys get through talking about the Confederacy, needing them and so on, you'll cry and let them go. Miss Charlton grinned and shook her eyes. I'll do no such thing, she said, touching the horses slight, lightly with the whip. The carriage went off swiftly. I love her. Like, just. Ah, okay. I don't, I think she ends up backing down, but I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> That's a fine woman, said Gerald. Putting on his hat and taking his place beside his own carriage. Drive on, Toby. We'll wear her down and get the horses yet. Of course she's right. She's right. If a man not a gentleman, she's an old business on a horse. The infantry is a place from him. But more's the pity. There's not enough planted sons in this county to make up a full troop. What did you say, Puss? Pa, please ride behind us or in front of us. You kick up such a heap of dust and we're choking, said Scarlet, who felt that she could endure conversation no longer. It distracted her from her thoughts, and she was very anxious to arrange both her thoughts and her face in attractive lines before reaching Twelve Oaks. Gerald obediently put spurs to his horse and was off in a red cloud after the Charlton marriage where he could continue his horsey conversation.